We are in uh, week number six of uh, suggestions for a successful summer, and we're talking about relationships today, and we're talking about it from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. I had a lapse there for a moment. And uh, we're going to read that together, um, but I should probably tell you that this sermon actually was so long that I am actually going to preach part A today and then part B next week. And don't be applauding. Man, Pastor Kevin is such a problem. Wow. Anyway, let's stand together, and I am reading the yellow, and you're going to read the white, and this is what it says. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, ask him, this is Jesus he's asking this to, what commandment is the most important of all? Censored. The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the one is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no, one, uh, no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Beautiful. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your love for us in Christ and the way that you have so generously exhibited it with, with extravagance and with graciousness. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes what you have accomplished in Christ and makes it both applicable and available to our lives. And so we ask now today, that you would grant the continuation of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in this service, that we would have a, a voice to speak, uh, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and ears to hear, and uh, particularly when we go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our places of work and where we get our education and where we get our services and all those things, that we would live out what it means to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so we ask this today in his name, for his namesake, and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Now, why don't you be seated? Did you know that Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospels. Not 306, not 308, 307 questions in the Gospels. Did you know that? Did you also know that Jesus was asked 183 questions in the Gospels? 183 questions in the Gospels. And do you know how many of those 183 questions he actually answered? Three. Now, do you know which three? Okay, you're failing the test this morning, okay? The three are, 
teach us to pray, and the Greek language is in a question form. And the next one is, how many times should we forgive? And the third question that he answered was, what is the greatest commandment? These are all questions about us and how we're supposed to be and act in our world. Researchers have for years studied the age-old mystery of what it is that makes people happy, truly happy. And their answer may surprise you because what comes up consistently is not such things as success or good looks or possessions. What comes up consistently as the clear winner is relationships. Close relationships is the thing that makes us as human beings most happy. But that raises an interesting question. If relationships make us so happy, then why is it that so many of them make our lives so difficult? And what can we do in difficult relationships to keep our cool, to stand our ground and reach positive solutions when we find ourselves managing high-maintenance relationships. Now, we all know what this is. Uh, We know what this means, and we know who this means in our lives. Those high-maintenance people that we all seem to have in our lives. And whether we like it or not, most of us will have to interact with complicated, difficult people at one time or another. So what do we mean? And who do we mean by HMRs? High-maintenance relationships, or HMPs, high-maintenance people. Well, there are two kinds of relationships that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, in a few moments, we'll talk about low-maintenance relationships and high-maintenance relationships. Now, low-maintenance relationships are the people in our lives whom we naturally fit with. Now, we may hit temporary uh, turbulence together for a time, but it's periodic, and for the most part, the relationship stays on course. But we also have some relationships that are not quite as easy to manage. These are high-maintenance relationships. These are high-maintenance people. These are people who beef and bite and bellyache. These are people who give us the cold shoulder. These are people who require special attention. These are people who play the victim. These are people who dominate. These are people who trample on the feelings of other people. Now, it is possible to make high-maintenance relationships better, but there's a few things we have to keep in mind. So first of all, we have to be mindful of is love. Now, you may roll your eyes when you think of this because there's really nothing new here. 
Love is pretty much the rule of thumb when it comes to Christianity. It's not optional. And matter of fact, everything that Jesus probably said and did could be summed up with one word. His way was the way of love. Matter of fact, Jesus actually said these words to us from Matthew's gospel. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if that isn't enough, he actually ups the, ups the stakes or ups the ante, forgive the illustration, in Luke's gospel where he says these words, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Wow. That's a tall order. And when I was thinking about these words, I was reminded of something Mark Twain said. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. So one of the things when we talk about high-maintenance people and high-maintenance relationship is that we have to be mindful of love. But the other thing that we have to be mindful of is this, is that loving others and loving God go hand in hand, especially, and maybe more so, when it comes to difficult people. Most of us are aware of what John says. And John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, loving God is one thing. But loving others, particularly high-maintenance people and high-maintenance relationships is a whole other thing. Someone put it in these terms. Living with saints above, oh, that will be glory. But living with saints below, well, that's another story. Now, the good news is that God understands that this is a tall order. It's challenging. And so much so that he actually did something about it. Now, your capacity and my capacity, our capacity to love difficult people in our lives does not grow because time passes. Something must change inside of us. Christ has to place his love inside of us because our love is not enough. And so our capacity to love increases and grows as a direct result of our deepening relationship with God. Rudolf Otto, many, many years ago, said this. He said, there are two things that bring people to, and here it is, to a brush with the transcendent, to a brush with God that can leave a person with a shudder in their soul. In other words, that can change them and transform them. There are two things that bring people into a, into a closeness with God and a brush with God's power that can leave a shudder in their soul. And he said, these are the two things, great suffering and great 
love. Now, what I want to do this morning is, when we talk about getting along with difficult people, I want to give you some practical suggestions. And I sort of looking at it, uh, conflict, managing conflict Jesus' way, if you will. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, Romans says this. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, and I find this ironic that Paul would write that because he was in more conflict with more people at more times than anybody else in the Bible. But he wrote this, and he said, if possible, which is a good caveat at the beginning, by the way, as far as it depends on you, me, and us, live peaceably with all. Now, my first practical suggestion for us is this is that it just might be me. Now, in difficult relationships, part of the problem is me, or could be me. Well, more like you, but not me. You know what I'm saying? In your relationships, it's probably you. But, but maybe we identify with Johanna Reardon, who said these words, I seem to be a magnet for difficult people. I always make the mistake of being overly friendly with everyone I meet. Making them feel that I will accept all of their faults and foibles. At times, the overabundance of difficult people in my life has been overwhelming. And I've wanted to retreat to a high mountain and live a monk-like experience. So sometimes... <clears throat> If we, have, we are a magnet to high-maintenance relationships and high-maintenance people, difficult people, maybe it just might be me. Just might be us. Not them at all. It just might be us. Now, here's something to think about. The second suggestion I would make is this, is that we are the first servants and servants first. In our first church when we were in ministry, Ruth and I, and this was before we had children, not that it's important, I was a youth pastor. And uh, we had made this plan to go to Grand Rapids, Michigan for this big youth event. And uh, the, uh, the, the interest was really low, and so we decided to cancel the trip. And there was one particular family that had three girls, three teenage girls. And um, they were really upset that we canceled the trip. And uh, so we met one day, and uh, Russ and Rosalie, if I named the person who this was, you'd know exactly who it is. And um, so they were really unhappy that I canceled the trip, and so he came to the office one day at the church to sort of um, to talk to me about it. And we met in the hallway, and I was just coming out of the office, and we met in the hallway, and... He demanded, he demanded that I take my car and drive his three teenage daughters to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I said, listen, pal, there's no way, first of all, that I am going to Grand Rapids with three teenage girls in my car. It's just not going to happen. And we had it out. Matter of fact, the volume of the conversation, the argument got so intense and so loud that I could hear the secretary in the office come and close the office door so that they didn't have to listen to it. Now the problem was that this guy was a board member. So I'm thinking, I better head this thing off of the pass. So I went after he left and he was, 
He was mad and I was mad, but he was madder than me. And uh, he left, and so I went into my senior pastor, and I said, hey, I just had this conversation with person X, and told him the story I just told you. And I said, uh, it got pretty ugly and pretty loud, and uh, I said, I don't know what to do. And my senior pastor said this. He said, Todd, you're a pastor. That means that you're the first servant. And the first servant has to be the one to go and fix the relationship. The relationship is broken. And because you're the first servant, it is your responsibility to make the first step toward reconciliation. So I took a day and I called the guy and I said, can we get together? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. So we got together, and I said to him, I said, listen, um, I haven't changed my mind on the fact that I'm not going to bring your daughters to Grand Rapids by myself, uh, but I said, I just want you to know the way, in, uh, the way in which I went about it with you was wrong, and I need to apologize, and I need to ask your forgiveness because I really don't want to live in a broken relationship with you. And it was very, um, we reconciled, it was made right, and the ending was exactly as you would have wanted it. You know what's interesting out of that? I had a couple of other incidences where I brought in, a, I brought in this musical guest who was very popular back in the 80s. And um, because of a number of things that didn't go really well, uh, the concert went well, but the ticket sales didn't go well, and I lost $2,000. And the board called me in and said, hey, why did you lose $2,000? And I told them the reason why actually it was partly their fault, but we'll leave that alone, um, which it was. And this guy who I had the argument with was sitting at the table, and he was the first one to stand up and say, you know what, I think we should just cover the $2,000. And he became my greatest supporter on the board. Remember that we are servants first, and we are first servants. And I, I think this is what Mark Twain was getting at. You know, we all love the idea of being servants or the idea of servanthood in the body of Christ. But I'm not sure that we all love the idea that when we're expected to be a servant, it sort of changes the complexity of it. And so if we're going to love the way God loves and if we're going to manage these high-maintenance relationships and these high-maintenance people, then we're going to have to do it as servants, and that's costly. And the third thing is that don't let a difficult person determine our mood. Um, you need to understand, we need to be reminded here that nobody can make you mad, sad, or glad. We say to our kids from time to time, you're making me mad, or to our spouses, hopefully not to our spouses, you're ticking me off. No, 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 no. No one makes me sad, no one makes me glad, and no one makes me mad. I choose those. I choose those. You choose those. Set some boundaries. There are behaviors that are unacceptable. There are behaviors that I can act out that are unacceptable in a relationship. There are behaviors that other people 
have that are unacceptable. And sometimes, even in pastoral ministry, I had some people, I've had some people be somewhat rude. And I have responded in saying to them, I'm sorry, but that behavior is unacceptable to me. I am not prepared to talk to you with this attitude. We get to do that. It's our lives. Recognize the chemistry between us and them. Sorry, I missed one, didn't I? That guard against infection. That high-maintenance people, difficult people... High-maintenance relationships are like a highly contagious virus. It's contagious. And you know what amazes me? It amazes me how easily somebody else's anxiety can be put over onto me. And how easily I allow somebody else's anxiety to be put over on me. So guard against infection because negativity is like a virus. It is highly contagious. Recognize the chemistry between us and them or the lack thereof. We'll deal with that in a moment. And the last one is just this. Remember the difficulty is often with the relationship, not necessarily with the person. Sometimes it's just the relationship that's difficult. Now, about 40 years ago, a guy by the name of William Schultz was contracted by the U.S. Navy to come up with an instrument that they could use to help them put together these compatible submarine crews. And these groups were people who had to live together in close quarters. They had to sort of live elbow to elbow. They, uh, they were there for extended periods of time, and it needed to be an environment of minimal conflict. And Schultz determined that compatible behavior was determined primarily by natural fit. In other words, people who get along well with each other do so without much effort. Their relationships do require some work, but not an exorbitant amount of work. They are what we call low maintenance relationships. So we want to talk about maintaining low maintenance relationships, LMRs or LMPs, low maintenance people. Now, low maintenance relationships and low maintenance people are people who fit together naturally. Now, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I'm working off of this assumption that these are the people we love. Now, I know that might be a bit of an assumption, but I'm assuming that these are our family members. This is our spouse. These are our very close friends. These are our most important relationships. But even low-maintenance relationships need some attention. But let me ask you this question. You ask yourself this question, do I like the people I love? Do we like the people we love? You know, the Bible says that we have to love one another, right? And I have to love you, and you have to love me. But we may not necessarily like each other, you know what I'm saying? So my question to us, do we like the people we love? 
Because sometimes the people we love give us lots of reasons not to like them. So my question stands, do I love, do I like my spouse? If I wasn't married to him or her, would I hang around with them? Still. Do I like my kids? I had a friend of mine who was, uh, had, had three cute little kids, and um, I remember going there, going at, the, going at the door of the church one morning, and I said to her, to her, I said, man, you have great kids. You have, no, I said, you have the cutest kids. And she said, yep, and it saves their butt almost every day. <clears throat> Do we like our families? But I think it starts here. Do I like myself? Do I like me? Now, liking ourselves is not psychobabble. The Bible is very clear about it. Did you know that the statement that we read in our text this morning, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is in the Bible eight times? Seven times it's in the New Testament. Now, I did not know that before this week when I was working on this sermon. To love your neighbor as yourself is in the Bible eight times. Now, I know it's got two components, that the idea of loving our neighbor and the idea of loving ourselves, and we're focusing today on the second one, loving ourselves. And if this was not important, then I'm assuming that the Bible would not repeat itself seven times in the New Testament alone. Now, I've learned over the years that when the Bible says something a second time or a third time, that the re-emphasis of it has meaning, it's important, but the Bible says this seven times. So I'm assuming that this is important. Now, I understand as well that for some of us, the idea of loving ourselves simultaneously, first of all, on one hand, attracts us, and on the other hand, it frightens us. Because loving ourselves involves embracing some truths about us that we may not particularly like. And it requires some level of self-reflection, some level of openness and honesty about who we really are as people. Because if I only know my strong and competent self, and am never able to embrace my weak and insecure self, I am forced to live a lie. Likewise, if I refuse to face my deceitful self, I live an illusion regarding my own integrity. Because you know what? We are all kind of nice people in this room and I'm sure all of you watching online, but you people have a very dark side. And so do I. Um, 
if you put us all in a room for 12 hours with no food and no bathrooms and no air conditioning on some of these beautiful days that we've had, we might see the dark side. If I am unwilling to acknowledge my prideful self, I live an illusion of false modesty. So there's an enormous value in naming and coming to terms with those excluded parts of ourselves. Somebody said this, that when we look at ourselves, we need to see ourselves as a family, uh, just our person. And what they meant was that our family, ourselves, is made up of many different parts. And what we need to learn to do is allow all of those parts to assemble around the family table of our lives and give them a voice and let them speak so we can be whole. And the parts that I'm talking about, some of them are my playful parts, my cautious self, my exhibitionistic self, my pleasing self, my competitive self, and even my shameful self. And the other frightening parts of me that I'm embarrassed about and I'm uncomfortable with, And all of this, of course, leads to, do I know myself? Now, we're all comfortable in our faith and in Christianity with the idea of knowing God. But when it comes to knowing ourself and the idea of knowing ourself and that knowing ourself according to what our text says and what these other eight, seven places in the Bible talks about, that this idea of knowing ourself is equally important in the role and in our spirituality as Christ followers. Now, you may not, we may not be aware, or maybe we are aware The connection between knowing God on one hand and knowing ourselves on another hand has always been a part of the Christian tradition. For example, Thomas Akempis said, a humble self-knowing is a surer way to know God God, than a search after deep learning. St. Augustine prayed this, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. And these are just two of many significant thinkers, writers, and spiritual people. David Benner said, there is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self. And no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. And John Calvin wrote this. John Calvin said, Nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in two parts. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now part of the problem, part of the problem has been that this idea of knowing ourselves and growing to know ourselves has been largely ignored. And we're comfortable with focusing on the idea of knowing God, but we tend to ignore the concept of knowing ourselves with incredible problem. We have paid dearly for it. The consequences have been grievous. Ruined lives. Marriages destroyed. Families torn apart. Ministries shipwrecked. And countless people that have been hurt and damaged, all because 
we have failed to do the hard work as Christians of not just knowing God, but knowing ourselves. There's a story, and I think many of you have probably heard it about Nasruddin. Nasruddin came home from wherever he was one night to his house, and he realized that he had lost his key. And it was very dark, and so he couldn't see where he was standing, so he got down on his hands and knees, and he began to feel around and tried to find his key, but he couldn't find it. And so moving back toward the streetlight, he again got down on his hands and knees and began to meticulously examine the area, and a friend happened by. And the friend noticed him, said, Nazarim, and Nazardum, what are you doing? And he said, well, I lost my key and I'm looking for it. And so the friend got down and started looking around as well and feeling around. And the friend said to him, do you know where you lost your key? And uh, Nazarum said, yes, I lost it in my house. And his friend said, well, why are we looking for it out here? He said, because the light is much better here. We're like him, aren't we? More than we'd like to admit. We search for a missing spiritual key, but we tend to look on the outside of ourselves where it's easiest to search. It's easy for me to say, Ruth's the problem. Well, Kevin is the problem, but it's easier for me to say that. But it's easier to look outside of ourselves, isn't it, to search for the answer when the key is inside. It's inside of us. Healthy self-awareness through personal reflection makes for healthy interpersonal relationships. Whether it is maintaining high-maintenance relationships or maintaining low maintenance relationships. Now, I could talk to you about some things like watch your mouth and mind your manners, but I don't want to do that. I want to end with this, that some words matter more than others. Does anybody remember the computer virus called I love you? Anybody remember that? I don't know why. I remember this. Of all the computer viruses that have ever gone out, this has been one of the most impactful negatively, that more computers were infected and there was more money spent on preparing the damage than probably any other computer virus, the I love you virus. Now, the I love you virus actually started in China and it spread to the rest of the world within a matter of hours, a few hours. But what made the I love you virus so extraordinary was not the virus itself, but the words I love you made it so effective because the words I love you are some of the most powerful words in the world. And when these words appear in a subject line of an email sent by a friend or a family member, we are compelled to open the email because who can turn down? Somebody writing us a love note. And even though the news 
warn people of the I love you virus, people still would not not open the email because of the words I love you. You know what? Sometimes we're like the couple that was married for 60 years. And for 60 years, the husband had never said to his wife, I love you. So on their 60th wedding anniversary, the wife said, why, did, why is it that you never ever told me for these last 60 years that you love me? And he said, listen, on the day we got married, I told you I loved you, and I also told you that if anything changed, I'd let you know. <laughs> we may never know the power of our love and saying it in the lives of others, especially the people we love the most. There was a note, actually there was an open letter that was written and placed in one of the South American newspapers. And it was an open letter from a father to his son. And among other things in the letter, at the bottom it said this, Pedro, I love you, I'm sorry, all is forgiven. If you accept this, then I will meet you at this location, the location was there, at this time and on this date. The father showed up at the location, at the time, and at the date. And seven men named Pedro responded to the letter to be reconciled to their fathers. I finish with this story by Donald Miller. He shares a story how he helped a friend whose alcoholism was destroying his life, and I'm going to read it to you. He wrote, last year I pulled a friend out of his closet. His marriage was falling apart because of his inability to stop drinking. This man is a kind and brilliant human being, touched with many gifts from God, but addicted to alcohol and being taken down in the fight. He was suicidal. He was suicidal, we thought, and the kids had been sent away. We sat together on his back deck and talked for hours deep into the night. I didn't think he was going to make it. I worried about him as I boarded my flight back to Portland and he checked himself into rehab. Two months later, he picked me up from the same airport, having gone several weeks without a drink. And as he told me the story of the beginnings of his painful recovery process, he said, a single incident was giving him the strength to continue. His father had flown in to attend a recovery meeting with him. And in the meeting, my friend had to confess all of his issues and weaknesses. And when he finished, his father stood up to address the group of addicts. And he looked at his son and he said, I have never loved my son as much as I do at this moment. I love him. I want all of you to know that I love him. 
And my friend said at that moment, Miller writes, for the first time in his life, he was able to believe God loved him too. And he believed if God, his father, and his wife all loved him, then he could fight the addiction. And he believed he might make it. Some of the most important words we will ever hear, we will ever say, is I love you. I want you to close your eyes. And Pastor Scott, I want you to come. And I just want you and the team to just play that second last song. Actually, sorry, it was the last song. I stand amazed. I want to pray first. Father, this, this here, this moment, is the working ground of the Holy Spirit in my life, in our lives, in this room. And Father, I pray today that this would be a moment of self-reflection for each of us. Even if we're uncomfortable with the idea, Lord, that you would help us with your peace and with your courage to for the next couple of moments to just be able to look into the mirror. Oh, yes, there's great things to see, but there's also some, not some great things to see. 